Hey friends, this is Josh Blair, and I'm the pastor of Central Valley Church, and this is our podcast. My prayer for the message you hear today is that it will inspire you and encourage you to walk closer with Jesus this week. If you want to stay connected with us, please check us out at CVC Madera, both on Facebook and Instagram. And you can check out our YouTube channel, Central Valley Church. Thanks for listening. All right, are you ready for God's word today? Amen. Let's go, before we go to God's word, let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your presence. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here and allowing us to feel your presence here. We know that you're everywhere at all times, but God, we have special moments with you where you make your presence known to us, your manifest presence. And we're grateful that you are here this morning, moving on our hearts, God. Speak to us. Help us to be open to receive what you have for us through your word today. We honor you and your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, some of you uh, don't know this, but some of you do, uh, including the leadership team and obviously our family. But uh, I wanted to announce to everybody that uh, Faith and I are expecting a new child coming in September. And yesterday we found out that we are having a baby girl, a baby girl. So... We're pumped, and uh, I'm glad that we did it yesterday so I can get my mind wrapped around it so I would not be so flustered today because I don't know what to do with baby girls. So I've got two boys, and Lord, give me grace and mercy, and uh, please don't allow me to be a pushover because I feel like that's going to happen, and mom's going to have to do all the disciplining because I'm like, look at her, you know? So um, anyway, but because of that, we had family in town. That's why my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law are here with us and also Faith's parents. Uh, came down yesterday with us, and so um, anytime that we get together as family, usually we play games. Uh, my brother-in-law is famous for the games he likes to play. We'll play darts in the backyard. He at his house, he has this little ring toss thing that is like it's super frustrating. Um, that no one, I don't, I mean, I've got it, but no one has seen it happen, so I can't say that it happened. Um, you know, so we play a lot of games, and um, and one of the games that we really like to play, we didn't actually play it yesterday, but it's this game here that uh, Faith said, why don't you choose another game to talk about because no one's heard of this game. But um, it's because of the nature of this game I want to talk about. It. This game is called Settlers of Catan. This is a game that, uh, that can be very enjoyable and frustrating at the same time. You know those games where you sit down and uh, it's better to play with perfect strangers because there's no hard feelings at the end, right? Because if you play with people that you love, someone's going to go to bed mad and someone's going to be sleeping on the couch. It's this kind of game, The Settlers of Catan, and it's not a game that you can just pick up and start playing. It's a, it's a complicated game. There's a lot of pieces. to. If you look at it initially, you're like, how do we set this up? How do we do this? And luckily, this game comes with a list of rules. I mean, this is a rule book that it comes with. Official game rules uh, and the almanac. That's an interesting thing. It actually has an almanac to this game. So if you thought this was a simple game, it's simple once you learn it, but if you've never played it before, you're like, I don't know what to do with these sticks and these buildings, and why do I have sheep? I don't understand. I'm not a farmer. I mean, even people love this game so much, they literally give you a bumper sticker. <laughs> this is in the game. They're like, hey, you're a, you're a settler of Catan player, so congratulations. Put this on your bumper sticker. Everybody will know it and hate you for it. Um, you can play that. <laughs> What's interesting, this, this rule book is, is vitally important. Without this, you would not know how to play this game. You wouldn't know what to do with it. You wouldn't know where the pieces go. Um, this rule book tells you what you're supposed to do in the game, what you're working towards, what's the goal. It tells you who's won at the end, what is the end agenda. It tells you when you can do something, when you can't do something, how you can do something, how you can't do something. 
And the creator of this game, actually, obviously is the one who made the rules because they know how the game works, right? It's simple, easy. This game is set up by somebody who says, look, I've created this game. I've designed it. I think it's going to work perfectly, but if you do it within the rules, it has to be within the rules and the structure that I've created for you. It's not something like, well, I decided I'm just going to make this turn this way. I mean, actually, we've had conversations like that before. I've played, I'm like, I can play this, and I can also play this at the same time because I have a certain card that makes it happen. And Faith's like, absolutely not. Let's go to the rules. And if you know Faith, you know that she follows the rules. So she has this book memorized. It's the <laughs> she says, no, she doesn't. But you'll see. You'll see if you ever play with her. She'll pull it out, right? You have to play with the rules. You ever try to play a game without knowing the rules? It's chaos. Have you ever played with small children who decide to make up the rules as you go? Saul, okay. <laughs> you know, you're playing something, and they're like, ah, ah, that's not it. I, now I win, and I tag, you're it. And like, hold on, we're, we're playing tag? Like, I don't even know. Right? If you, if you continue to move the rules or change the rules or not follow the rules that have been established, all, you, all comes of it is chaos and confusion. The rules are important. In fact, the rules set everything up for us. And trying to play a game like this is impossible without the rule book. The creator, designer knew it and knows what's possible in the game, what's impossible, and helps create a structure for you to enjoy it. Without the rules, there is no enjoyment. It's just chaos. See, we've been reading through the book of Leviticus and through our reading plan this year, and this book of Leviticus acted as a rule book for the people of Israel. See, God is the designer, the creator of everything and everyone, and he established these rules or a standard of living, the way that he desired the world to work, how he desired human relationships to work, how he desired that we should treat each other. And he created this book called Leviticus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to Moses for people to know how to live, how to prosper, what to work towards, what to aim for in this life that he created for us. The tricky part is, obviously, when we're reading through Leviticus, is that there's a ton of laws in there that we don't understand how they apply to us. And as we read through Leviticus, I want to address some of these things. And we're going to start with Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, and this is God instructing Moses why he wants his people to follow these rules. Leviticus 18 Starting in verse 1, it said, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You, should, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt from where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in these statutes. You shall follow my rules, keep my statutes, and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes, my rules. If a person does them, shall live by them. I am the Lord. See, the Lord is laying out a set of instructions, a rule book for his people to follow, to distinguish them from the people that are surrounding them, to distinguish them from where they came from. Egypt represents their slavery, their past, their bondage, saying, hey, I don't want you to live like they live there. You're separate. You're distinct. And I'm taking you to a place that's also filled with people who have been bound by things, have been partaking in things that I don't want you to be a part of. So you gotta, it's gonna, you're going to look different. You're going to act different. You're going to live differently. These are my rules. This is my statute that I have for you moving forward. And the best thing about as God is explaining these things to the people, he establishes who he is. He starts first by saying, I am the Lord your God. 
He in, he, in the middle of it, he says, I am the Lord. At the end of this phrase, in five verses, he says, I am the Lord. What's he doing? He is establishing his rule and his authority to set these rules into place. He's saying, I'm the creator. I'm the designer. I made the game. I know how it should work. But you're going to be around people who think they know how it should work, but they're not the one who created it. They're not the one who designed it. So I am, I am the Lord, I am God, I have a desire. And he says, if you live by, if you follow them, you'll live by them, meaning you will prosper, you will be, you will have abundant life if you follow these set of rules that I've created for you. See, the challenge is, though, and this is what I'm hoping to answer this morning, are these two questions. The first one is this, why don't we still follow all of the Old Testament rules or all of the Old Testament law? Why don't we follow every single thing? Why don't we do every little bit and parcel of the law? We should do it all if we're doing any, right? That's a question that I've heard. The other one is this. If, which, if any, of these laws should we follow? So we're going to answer, why don't we follow all of them? And are there some that we should still? Do we just completely wipe it away? Or do we follow all of it? Or is there something that God is desiring for us to do as we look through these, these laws of Leviticus? In fact, the argument that I've heard from non-Christian uh, people regarding the Old Testament law is this. They say Christians just pick and choose. They pick and choose the rules they want to follow. Have you ever heard anybody say this as an argument? They say, look, when the Bible talks about sexual behavior as sin, you speak about that. But when the Bible says don't wear mixed fabric, you're like, ah, forget it. Doesn't matter. So the argument against us as believers is like you're inconsistent with what you believe. Or the, the other argument is it's all out of date. It's completely out of touch. You're trying to live by a set of rules that, first of all, you don't live by all of them. And they're for a different era, a different time, not for us. So, you're, so either you throw it all out or you do all of it. That's the argument that I've heard. And this argument sometimes has weight in it. And as believers, because we've not really gone, not, as my dad was saying, not a lot of us are sitting at home reading Leviticus being like, I have to, I got to know this, Right? Not all of us are doing those things. So as arguments like this arise, and, and even in the churches, amongst church people and amongst believers, there are still contention about some of these laws in Leviticus. As these things rise up, some of us are like, I don't know how to answer this, so just don't, don't ask me. I would rather just not address it at all. Let's just, let's not worry about this, and I, and I, because I don't know how to answer it. I don't know how to approach it. But my hope is to answer these questions today and to address this argument. And to do this, I'm actually going to be using some quotes from a 16th century reformer named John Calvin. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He addressed these laws, and he saw that as he read the New Testament, he noticed the New Testament authors approach Old Testament law in different ways. And of course, I'm going to my handy whiteboard, and everyone said, of course. Right? So John Calvin, in his writings in the 16th century, said this. Look, as we look at New Testament and how it approaches Old Testament law, it seems that there are three different categories or types that, that uh, the Old Testament law speaks about. The first one is civil. Right? As, we, as we look as God has designed and, and begins to lay out laws in, the, in Leviticus, there are civil laws that help set up a governing structure for the people of Israel because the people of Israel are a nation and there has to be civil law so that they're just like we have civil code and civil law in our nation. It helps the nation govern and stay in without chaos and confusion. So there's civil laws. 
Then there are ceremonial laws. That it talks about the sacrificial system. We talked about that last week and how the priests had to be consecrated and they walked through this and they were sacrificing the bull and the rams and daily they were sacrificing. And there was, if there was um, accidental sins, you came and brought an offering. And if there was intentional sins, you came and brought an offering. And there was this continual system. Those laws are found in ceremonial laws. It helped us define what are clean and unclean. Those are the laws that talk about mixed fabrics. Because God was distinguishing his people being clean and unclean from those that were around them. There are civil laws, like, hey, as you're, when you're a farmer, don't glean everything on your field. Leave the edges for those that are poor that can come around and pick, right? Hey, when you're, you're caring for each other, you're not defrauding, you're not oppressing. These are all civil codes that are in there. And then lastly, uh, Calvin says, uh, there are moral laws that we see in the, in the Old Testament through Leviticus. Some of those, the most, most uh, easiest that actually are described in Exodus are the Ten Commandments. Like, don't steal, don't kill, right? Don't commit adultery, don't you honor your father and mother. These are moral codes, moral laws. Some of them even talk about relation and intimacy. And, and essentially, these things reflect the character and nature of God as God defines good versus evil. These are the laws that are broken out for us through Leviticus. And now quoting an article that I was reading through J.D. Greer, he said this, for the Old Testament Israel, uh, all three types of these laws were blended together. So if you broke a civil law or a ceremonial law, there are also moral consequences that came with it. If you broke a moral law, often it affected how you were able to, uh, it affected your ceremonial uh, sacrifices and the system that you had to do in civil code as it related to working within a society as people together. And this was unique because Israel was not just uh, a nation to itself, it was also a worship community. So these things all bound together. They were a nation state defined by God, and he, there was a theocracy. God was in charge, and they were to follow all of these rules together. They blended together. There was no separation of church and state in a sense that there was no dividing line between civil code, ceremonial code, and moral law. There was no division. But today, that's not the case for us in the church, is it? We are not... A nation of churches, we are, we are a body of Christ within a, a larger nation. And we are a mixed people, a diverse people, what God desired to do uh, in, the, in his kingdom. So the, the case for the church is that we look at these laws and we have, to, we have to approach them differently because we are a different people in a different, a different, a different time, a time space. So all of, these, all of this helps us understand uh, what seems to be contradictory in the New Testament regarding the law. Here's some things that we see in the New Testament that as we look at the Old Testament law, you think, I don't understand how these things fit together. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5.18 that the law was perfect. That heaven and earth would pass away before, uh, before anything in the law would fail. Then he says, uh, then uh, Apostle Paul says in Romans 7 and Galatians 3 that uh, if you've been born again, you have been released from the law. So what law are we talking about here? Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. I came to, to make sure all of these things were complete in, in himself. 
So how do we talk about this? What, what, what laws are they talking about when they're talking about this in the New Testament? And what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? It means this, that every law, civil, ceremonial, and moral, all pointed to something greater, and they all pointed to Jesus. And as they pointed ahead to Jesus, who would teach us how to treat one another, what does he say? This is the perfect, the perfect law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 9 is, if you read uh, Leviticus 9, 9 through 18, everything in there is loving your neighbor. It literally says, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus fulfills all of these things, caring for the poor, caring for the needy, caring for the oppressed, caring for each other. He fulfills those things. Ceremonially, we talked about it last week, how Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. That Jesus in himself became our sacrifice, right? And Jesus fulfills the Ten Commandments. We talked about this uh, maybe a few months ago. I preached on the Ten Commandments and how Jesus fulfills all of those things. And he, he, fulfill, he helps us understand good and evil. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. That, uh, he, and he points to, and it helps us understand why some of these laws we no longer have to uh, do because Jesus fulfilled them. And let me go into an example here. First, the civil laws. For instance, uh, this was to help the nation of Israel thrive as a nation. And Jesus, he comes out of the nation of Israel, but he establishes a new nation, a spiritual nation called the church. So he's not saying you have to be bound by these civil laws anymore that govern a nation state of people called Israel that were formed in history. He's saying now I've called you out of it. So these laws no longer apply to us in relation to Leviticus civil code. Like, if you, if you don't do these things, we're not going to stone you, right? So we're not bound by that. But we can wisely look at these civil codes and say, hey, there's some really good things in here about how to care for the poor, how to care for the needy, how to, uh, for public health and public safety. There's a lot of stuff laid out in there that, like, these are good things, but you're not bound by them anymore because we are not a part of the nation of Israel in the sense of a nation state formed in history at that point. All right, and again, I said in Leviticus, Leviticus 19 talks about caring for others, this law, and Jesus sums it up by saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You're fulfilling the civil laws in Christ as you do what he commands, the greatest commandments. Now, the ceremonial laws, they illustrate how God is so holy and we are so not. And in fact, um, because of the sacrificial system and all of these, what's clean, what's unclean, there was this understanding, and it was ingrained in the people that, that there was such a great divide between God's holiness and our brokenness by the amount of blood and the anim amount of animal sacrifices that were there. And it was ingraining in them and teaching them that there's a huge gap, the sin of, of sinful humanity and the perfection of God, and how costly it would be to bridge that gap, pointing obviously ahead to who Jesus is and his sacrifice and how great it would be to cover all of that for us. Even the book of Hebrews shows us that the sacrifices were all fulfilled in Jesus' perfect life and death. And he's saying if you accept Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, you don't need these lesser sacrifices of animals anymore. And in fact, it would be insulting and offensive to go back to them because you're basically communicating that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. And in fact, that's what Hebrew talks about. 
to go backwards and try to begin to do the sacrificial system again is worthless and meaningless. There's no power there anymore. The power is in the blood of Jesus. So Jesus fulfills these things, these laws. Then as we get to the moral laws, we also believe that Jesus fulfilled them as well. Jesus fulfilled all the moral laws that are kept. He kept them perfectly every day, always for his entire life. He never sinned. He never sinned civilly, ceremonially, or morally. He was perfect. But unlike the civil and ceremonial laws, which were time-stamped, designated for a nation-state that was going to be a people group and a worshiping community, these laws reflect the assessment of, of God's nature and character of what God defined as good and evil. And they reflect his character. And since they reflect his character and his character never changes, we view these moral laws differently. Because as God said, what is good and what is evil, he defined by the moral code. And in fact, whether, wherever we see Jesus speak about the moral laws, he either reaffirmed them or he raised them to a new level. Right, the moral law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's next level. Would you agree? So Jesus intensifies. He says, look, the Ten Commandments moral law says don't murder. But he says if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. That's, that's next level. So Jesus intensifies. He doesn't wipe away moral law. He raises the standard. So the moral law that I want to discuss this morning is found in Leviticus 18 where we started. God said, I'm establishing these things to separate you from the people that you came from and the people that you're going to be around. You gotta, you're going to look differently. You're going to act differently. And the moral law, the moral code continues on. See, God, after he says these things to Moses, he goes into detail about something that's a very uh, sensitive issue and it relates to our sexuality and how it should be expressed. God already, previously to beginning in Leviticus with the rule book, had already established that healthy and good sexual behavior is found only in marriage between a man and a woman. Every other sexual act, every other sexual act outside of marriage between a man and a woman, he says will cause us harm and not good. And God expressed that the nations around his people were practicing these sexual acts and it caused them to be driven out of the land, the land of Canaan. These people were committing these things and he says, look, it's contaminating the land and that's not what I want. That's not the, it's not in the rule book that I established. And then God goes on to list these things. He lists actually four sexual acts in, in Leviticus 18 that says, don't do these things. They're not helpful. They're not, they're not healthy. They're not going to benefit you. They're only going to cause you harm. The first one he lists is incest. I think we all know what that means, right? He says, don't do it. It's not healthy. It's only going to cause harm. Don't do those things. And everybody, I believe, would all agree, yes, we all agree. That's not healthy. We don't want that. Come on, amen, somebody. We don't want that. The next thing he talks about is adultery and fornication. Adultery is uh, pursuing sexual relations with somebody who you're not married to. And if they're married to somebody else and you're committing that, right, then fornication is having any type of sexual relation or encounter outside of marriage, the, un the union that God established that this is the place where sexual relationship and intimacy should be. He says, don't do these things. They're going to harm you, not, not be helpful. Then he goes on to, about, he talks about homosexuality, saying you were not created this way. 
you might have these desires, but it's not how I created you. And if this is what you partake in, it's going to hurt you, not help you. Then he goes on to bestiality. We all know what that means. And he says these things are not natural. And he mentions these things because historically you can look at the writings of the Persian culture and Egyptian culture and other cultures, and they were actually performing all of these things and more. And God said it's contaminating the land, it's poisoning the people, and it's breaking them. So I think that as we look at that list, three of the four of them we have no problem with. As the church, predominantly we would say, yeah, of course. Incest? No. Disgusting. Should never happen. Adultery? We know it's wrong. It happens, but we know it should not happen. Fornication? We know it shouldn't happen, but it happens. Right? Bestiality? Absolutely not. But it's one issue that our culture has, has held on to. Because it, it has morphed from something that people do to something that people are. It has become an identity issue rather than a sin issue. And because of that, people get really leery and kind of like, I don't know how to approach this. Maybe we shouldn't even talk about this. But it's in the word of God, and we have to be faithful to the word of God. But we are faithful in truth, but with grace. Because all of us are guilty of some sexual dis, uh, behavior or desire that is not honoring to God. And we need to talk about it. And I know it can be a such a touchy subject for a lot of us, but we have to understand that God does care about our sexuality. God cares about it because he created it. He designed it. He wrote the rule book on it. He knows how it should work and how it's going to be most beneficial and enjoyable. Thinking back again to the rule book, it's the creator, the designer who makes the rules and knows how it works best. And in the same way, if we believe God is the creator and the designer of all things, including our sexuality, then we have to look at his rule book, his moral law, and believe that he knows what's best. Because his moral law stands firm. It it is his definition of what's good and what's evil. So hopefully you can understand why we're not bound by these two rules or laws anymore, civil or ceremonial, but the moral law still stands firm in our hearts. At no point... Regardless of where we are as a people, will we say murder is okay? At no point will we say that adultery is good or, 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 or stealing or lying or dis, even dishonoring our parents or putting other things in front of God. At no point will those things ever fade away. So these things that we continue to hold on to because we know it's God's definition of what's good and what's evil. See, God placed these moral laws about our sexuality in the text of Leviticus because he knew that we were created with strong passions, but as sin came in, it would distort and pervert the thing that he gave us as a gift, and he knew that he had to help us, uh, he had to define what is healthy and good because sin always drives us to something that is unhealthy and destructive. So God said, I gotta, I gotta help my people know What's, what this is designed for, because sin will distort it and cause them harm and seek to destroy them. What does sin do from the adversary? comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So without a rule book of defining what's healthy and what's good, these things will lead us in the wrong direction. He knew it would be difficult for us to control our passions because of sin. And regardless of what your sin might be, sin always drives you away from the goodness of God. And he wanted us to know what's wrong all right. See, our problem is it arises when we desire to define for ourselves what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. We talked about this 
uh, as we began uh, reading through the Bible, starting in Genesis, that when Adam and Eve went to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't that they didn't know what was good or bad in those moments. That When they reached out for the fruit, they wanted to define for themselves what was good and evil. They wanted to say, I get to choose what's good for me and what's not good for me. Not God, not his rule, my rule, my desire is to define for myself. And now, as, even though we still defend the moral laws of the Old Testament, we have to keep in mind that Jesus fulfilled them all. So the Christian, our, us as believers, are no longer under obligation to keep the moral law as a way of earning anything or earning our way to God. See, these initially, when God gave them in Leviticus, it was so that he could be with the people. Don't commit these things because it's going to separate me from you. Jesus fulfilled all of these things, civil, ceremonial, moral laws. So we don't do these things, i got to be better so that God will love me, right? That is not a part of the moral law. Jesus fulfilled it. But why do we hold such a high standard of it? Because it's what God defines as good and evil. So instead of trying to earn our way to God by being morally good, we, we are changed in the presence of God by his spirit to desire the things that God loves. Because God isn't just looking after uh, robot obedience. He's looking for a whole not another kind of obedience, an obedience that says, uh, my love is for God and the things of God, and what God loves, I love. What God desires, I desire. What God delights in, I want to delight in. It comes from a relationship with him, not out of moral obligation to try to be a better person. Does that make sense? We keep the moral commands not because it's the law, but because we love God and we want to be like him. And if God says, this is what I'm like and this is what I define as good and evil, I want to keep these standards of what's good and evil. Because it, it helps me to be more like him. And regarding our sexual desire then, the goal, I think in the church, we, since we've not talked about it so much, even by me saying sexual desire in church, might, some of you might be a little on edge. That's a good because we need to address it. Because oftentimes, because the church, we've not addressed these things. When people have sexual desire, they think they either have to ignore it, they have to suppress it, or they have to give in to it. And it seems like that's the only thing that we can do. Because we're not addressing it in the church. Either I ignore my feelings or what I desire. I just pretend they're not there, and yet they continue to egg me on and push me. Or I try to suppress them and say, this is not really how I feel. I don't really feel this way. I don't really desire these things. Or we just give in to them and say, this, I, this is how God made me. This is how I should live. This is, how I should, this is how I should act. It feels good. I want it. I give in to it. Rather than doing that, we, we have to uh, look at saying, look, it's not about trying to be better or more pure. The issue really is a heart issue. When we will, the question is, will we submit to the truth about God and his authority in our lives, or will we put our desires first? Will we put our desires on the throne, or will we put God on the throne? Oftentimes when we speak about some of these issues regarding sexuality, Romans 1 comes up quite a bit. Romans 1, 18 through 27, it addresses sexual desires in the New Testament, and it makes clear that it is a heart issue, not a, a law issue, not a rule issue. It's no longer a rule issue, it's a heart issue. The question is, who's in charge? Who calls the shots of your life? It says in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
So my, my unrighteousness is my sinful desire. My desire suppresses the truth about who God is and what God says. This is the only way that I can give in to my sin and still say I'm okay because I suppress the truth. It's a heart issue here. It says, uh, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But he says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Meaning they took him off of the throne of their hearts and put their own desires there first. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Jumping down to verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, meaning themselves, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, we give in to lustful desires and, and sinful desires that are outside how God established it because we put our desires, our wants, ahead of who God is and his truth. It says, do you, want, do you want to worship God the creator or do you want to worship your own desires and your own passions that are within you? Verse 26 says, for this reason God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. And then he goes on to say, as you continue to read through that chapter, he speaks about homosexuality, sexual behavior that is outside God's intended creation. See, it's a heart problem. We're speaking about, when we speak about our own sexual sin and desires that are outside God's will, it's a heart issue. Do I do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, or do I submit to the authority of God's truth? Roman 1 points it out. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in that moment where we have to decide who gets to declare what's good. This is where society is right now. Who gets to declare what's good? Who gets to declare what's right and what's wrong? Is it us or is it God? And if we don't believe that there's a God who created everything, then we don't have a rule book and it leads to chaos. This is where we're at. We don't know how many genders there are. We don't know who can be with who and for how often. We don't know anything about anything now because there is no standard of living. There is no statute. There is no rule. And it leads to more and more confusion because we refuse to read the rules. We, we refuse to understand the truth. What will be Lord of my life, my desires, or God's truth? Rosaria Butterfield She's a former practicing lesbian and professor in literature and women's studies at Syracuse University. She wrote a book that says this, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She says this about herself, Homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare what's good or evil, who gets to play judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather the way he designed it for our pleasure for his glory. We all have a sin nature that desires to lead us in the wrong direction, especially when it comes to our sexuality. Whatever that might be, heterosexual, homosexual, or something else. We are all born into sin. 
And whatever that sin might be, we all struggle. Can I, we, we have to be very honest about this. We all struggle with our own sexual desire. What's good that God created and what's outside of that? We have to be honest. Homosexual desire, heterosexual, pornography, masturbation, all of these things. That these things that are, desire, that, that are outside how God designed it. And we have to be able to say, God, am I going to allow your truth to be Lord over my life or will I put my desire and elevate my passion above your truth? Here's the good news, that Jesus came to save us. He came to save sinners. That's me, that's you. And he forgives all sin, all kinds of sin. No sin is unforgivable if we will humble ourselves, submit our hearts, and say, your will, not my, be done. So the call today is to submit our lives to the rule and the authority of Jesus and his word. And to follow him, to define what is good for us, what is good, what is evil, what is right, and what is wrong. And if we seek to walk in his ways, to walk in his righteousness that I talked about last week, that he clothes us in his righteousness, it's not our effort, it's not our desire to be better, it's his goodness that surrounds us, it's his purity that purifies us, it's his spirit that anoints us to be able to walk in the goodness and desire what he desires, it's him doing the work, but we have to submit our hearts and humble ourselves and say, God, bring it to me, help me be more like you. I had an issue with Corbin just recently where he did something, he had lied about something and then made up a story to cover the lie uh, in, in entire sinful brilliance. He, he devised this whole scheme to try to fool us. I had to call him out and teach him, look, we don't do that. And I told him, look, lying is of the devil. It's not from God. And if you know my son, he can make anything more dramatic than it actually is. He cried out, and I said, it's of the devil. He cried out, I'm going to burn. And I said, you don't have to burn, son. You don't have to burn. You just ask Jesus to help you. He says, I don't know how to be good. I'm like, bro, you're preaching my sermon for me. I haven't even written it. I don't know how to be good. I said, Jesus can teach you. Just ask him, help me be more like you, Jesus. And my four-and-a-half-year-old in the back seat began to cry out. And I began to cry. He began to cry out, help me, Jesus, be more like you. Beautiful. This is the prayer for all of us. To say, Jesus, help me be more like you. Help me be more like you. I have desires. I have passions that I know are leading me in the wrong direction. But God, I want to honor you and your word, how you created it to be. The beauty is found in your creation and how you designed it. Help me be more like you. I don't know how to be good. I don't know how to be good. But you know how, and you perfected it. So come, Holy Spirit, and help me be more like Jesus. And you purify me, and you cleanse me as I confess and I humble myself and submit to your word and to your authority. He can do all things, and he can make all things good in its time. He can do it. None of us are too far gone. None of us have committed such a gravest sin that God cannot forgive and purify and wash clean. He can do it. And thanks be to God that he is faithful and kind and loving. And he draws us to himself. And he wants to clothe us again in his righteousness, cover us, purify us with the washing of his word on our hearts and lives.
transforming us from the inside out. Amen? God is good. The worship team would come forward as we close this morning. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If there's anyone here under the sound of my voice that does not have a relationship with Jesus, if you've never submitted your heart to Jesus, now is the time. So if that's you this morning, you need to submit to the rule and authority of Jesus and give your heart to him. On the count of three, I want you to raise your hand and say, pray for me, pastor. I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. One, two, three, right now. Thank you, Lord. Seeing no hands raised, believing everybody in here has already given their hearts to Jesus. Then I want to pray for us a prayer of freedom and a prayer of humility. Saying, Jesus, you know my struggle. You know my burden. You know my hardship. You know my desire to live for you. Help me, Jesus, to be more like you. Help me, Jesus, to be more like you. Whatever that might be, whatever it is for you, I want to pray that we would lean into Jesus, like I spoke last week, into his sacrifice, into his goodness, into his grace, into his love. Removing our desires off the throne of our heart and putting Christ rightfully in his place as Lord and King of our lives. As we do that, would you stand to your feet so we can pray together? Jesus, we thank you for your truth. Jesus, we thank you. That God, you love us. And I pray, God, right now every, for everyone under the sound of my voice this morning that, God, you would help us to say, Jesus, you call the shots. You're in control. It's your will. It's your word that has authority. Not my feelings. Not what I think is good. Not what I think is right. What your word says is good. What your word says is right. And we hang on to these things. Your moral truth. Your character revealed to us. Help us, Lord, to follow your will and your way. Not out of obligation, not out of a sense of trying to earn anything from you, but because this is what you define as good and evil. And because we love you and want to be in obedience to you, we desire to do what you would have us to do. We love you, Lord. I pray, God, your peace over every heart. God, if there's things that are in us that need to be corrected, that need to be submitted to your will, Lord, help us to do those things. Help us through confession and humility and submitting. Help us, God, to walk in your goodness and in your light today. We love you, Lord give you all the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 We love you. So grateful that you're here with us today. And we want to pray that you go in God's peace and in his joy. And if anything that I spoke to you about today ever hit home for you and you need to talk about it, you need to, you need to confess, you need to walk in humility, my door is open. You have my number. We can reach out anytime during the week. 
because I want to help you hang on to the truth of what Jesus said, of how he desires us to live. And we can do it together as we walk in community together. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel to hear past episodes. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate it and share it with your friends and help us out a lot. If you're interested in supporting the ministry of Central Valley Church, go to cbcmadera.churchcenter.com.